0: You're listening to an ACA podcast.
1: Welcome to ACCA. Um, my name is Max Delaney and it's a great pleasure to welcome you here to this seventh lecture in our series, Defining Moments, Australian Exhibition Histories, 1968-1999. to To begin with, I would like to sincerely acknowledge the Kulin Nations, the sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet, work and gather here this evening and extend our respects to elders past, present and emerging and to all First Nations people who join us this evening. The Defining Moments series encompasses 16 lectures over two years that take a deeper look at critical moments that have shaped Australian art since 1968. The series explores selected game changers in Australian art, addressing key contemporary art exhibitions and projects staged over the last three decades of the 20th century, and reflects upon the ways these exhibitions and projects have shaped art history and contemporary Australian culture more broadly. As always, I'd like to extend our thanks to presenting partner Abercrombie and Kent, who have been generous long-time supporters of ACCA and our lecture series. Uh, And equally, I'd like to thank COVA, the Centre of Visual Arts at the University of Melbourne, who are supporting the lecture series as research partner. We're also grateful to our media partners, ArtGuard Australia, The Saturday Paper and Triple R. Our event partners, the City of Melbourne, Cappy and the Melbourne Gin Company, who prepared this evening's spritz. Tonight, we're excited to present the seventh lecture in the Defining Moments series, focusing on two early feminist exhibitions in the mid 1970s and their relation to wider Australian art and social histories. We're delighted to welcome Janine Burke, whose lecture this evening is titled A Room of Their Own, Creating a Space for the Feminist Collective. Janine will explore two exhibitions about which she is intimately familiar, having been a protagonist in both. A Room of One's Own, Three Women's Artists in 1974, and in the following year, Australian Women Artists on 100 Years, 1840 to 1940, which was presented in 1975. Both exhibitions were initiated at the Ewing and George Payton Gallery at the University of Melbourne at a critical moment when feminist artists, critics, and curators were involved in the nascent feminist art movement in Australia, which went on to reshape our understanding of art history and academia, as well as art practice itself. Janine Burke is an art historian, curator and award-winning novelist. In 1975, she was indeed um, the curator of the landmark show and publication, Australian Women Artists, uh, in 1940, at the George Payton Gallery. And more recently, in 2014, she organised the conference, Kiffy Rubo, Curating the Seventies, at the University of Melbourne, leading to a book of the same name, co-edited with Helen Hughes and published in 2016. Janine was the inaugural lecturer in art history at the Victorian College of the Arts in 1977 and is now Honorary Senior Fellow at COVA, the Centre of Visual Art at the VCA. Uh, Following Janine's lecture, um, we're pleased to be welcoming also Dr Helen Hughes who will give a response and will consider the legacy of these exhibitions in relation to our contemporary context. Helen Hughes is an art historian, editor and curator She is a lecturer in fine arts at Monash University and her research focuses on Australian art history and international contemporary art. She she co-founded and co-edits the Melbourne contemporary art journal, Discipline, and is an editor of the peer-reviewed art history journal, Image. From 2016 to 2018, she was research curator at Monash University Museum of Art. And in 2016, she co-curated the 2016 Tarawara Barnial, Endless Circulation with Victoria Lynn. Helen has also presented exhibitions and discipline lectures at Gertrude Contemporary, among many other galleries in Melbourne and beyond. Following the lecture and response, uh, Janine and Helen will open the floor to questions from the audience. So um, please um, sort of gather and collect them as you go along. And my colleague Miriam Kelly, curator at ACA, will be on hand with a microphone to welcome questions. So for now, please join me in welcoming Dr. Janine Burke.
2: Uh, Yes, I too would like to uh, honour the traditional custodians of this land, past, present and to come, and I would also like to say how honoured I am to participate in this lecture series, Defining Moments. I think it's an excellent title because what one hopes at a certain point in time will last forever in terms of one's cultural enterprise turns out actually to just be a moment, but nonetheless a defining moment. Uh, I also feel that uh, my talk tonight is related to the very important uh, feminist exhibition Unfinished Business which took place here at ACCA not so long ago and I was engaged with that exhibition and I I think this is almost like a more specific kind of response from the 1970s, from that feminist era uh, to the kind of overview and issues that unfinished business wish to uh, investigate. Okay, so in 1973 I was an undergraduate student in the Fine Arts Department, now School of Culture and Communication at Melbourne University. Lynn Cook was a year ahead of me. Lynn had planned to write her honours thesis on Helen Frankenthaler. This is a photograph of Helen Frankenthaler in her New York studio in the mid-1950s. The best-known woman member of the New York School, exploring Frankenthaler's practice within the male confines of that group of artists. Lynn was told by the powers that be in the finance Department, that's not art history, that's sociology. Words recognised even then as a strategy to discredit feminist interventions in various fields of cultural research. I took the issue to Patrick McHackie. Patrick was the age art critic and a member of the department. he had also recently returned from New York where he was part of the circle around the critic Clement Greenberg, the major theoretical interpreter and supporter of New York school artists, including Jackson Pollock and Helen Frankenthaler. I'm not sure what Patrick said to the powers that be in the department, but Lynn's topic was approved. Lynn has gone on to have a distinguished international career. She's a senior curator at Washington's National Gallery of Art. The issue about Lynn's thesis was connected to something equally significant. Women artists were virtually excluded from the courses we were taught. At that time, there were two key texts framing our thinking. One was the essay by the American art historian, Linda Nochlin, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists, which I read in 1973 when it was republished in the anthology, Art and Sexual Politics. Nochlin argued that the expectations against women seriously pursuing art the restrictions on educating women as artists and, I quote, the entire romantic, elitist, individual glorifying and monograph producing substructure upon which the profession of art history is based, systematically excluded the emergence of great women artists. The other important text was Ways of Seeing by Marxist historian John Berger and based on Berger's TV series of the same name. Berger took the provocative step of placing images of women culled from advertising, popular culture and soft porn alongside paintings by Modigliani, Picasso and Rubens making the argument that high art did not exclude sexism. Not only was it a fresh and shocking reading of art history, but both texts marked the beginning of a shift, one of the biggest shifts that the discipline of art history had encountered, the intervention of feminism. Lynn and I took our frustrations to Kiffy Rubo, director of the Ewing Gallery in University of Melbourne's Student Union Building. Kiffy had been appointed supervisor of the Roden White Library, which included the Ewing Gallery, which in 1975 became part of the larger space known as the George Payton Gallery. Kiffy was creating networks with undergraduate students like us, who were often disaffected, tapping into our energies in constructive ways. This is a photograph of me and Kiffy. Um, I'm on your left, Kiffy's on your right, and we're holding works by um, Anne Newmarch. And uh, this is, uh, of course, the exhibition, um, A Room of One's Own, Three Women Artists. And this was the exhibition that the three of us decided to curate, which was one of Australia's first feminist art shows. Curate. It's the word that's taken on broader and more complex significance in recent years, it's from the Latin curare, meaning to take care. Curator was once a neutral term, interchangeable with the word keeper, the keeper of the prince at the British Museum. These days, to curate means to select, decide, display, discriminate, prepare, organise and to categorise. Was that a strategy Kiffy employed? Or does the breadth of her achievements in her decade at the George Peyton amount to a curatorial statement? Well, yes. But curating implies intent. What was our intention? I'll return to this. A Room of One's Own was my first experience of curatorial practice. Lynn and I were the novices and Kiffy the professional. She taught us, offering exactly the kind of emphasis... Australian, contemporary, stimulating, that we sought but were not finding in some of our art history courses. She made curating seem like an adventure, one that women could share. Though Ellen Rubo, Kiffy's mother, was an artist, as was her grandfather, Antonio Datilo Rubo, Kiffy did not elect to study art history at Melbourne Uni. Perhaps her more personal grounding in the visual arts meant that the opinions of artists were particularly valid to Kiffy and she treated artists as she did the young art writers she drew around her with respect. A Room of One's Own comprised three artists, Leslie Dumbrell, Anne Newmarch and Julie Irving. Uh, this is an installation shot from of the exhibition. Uh, it's a little bit... It's it's taken from a slide, which is why it's so kind of grubby. (laughs) Anyway, up here you can see um, Anne Newmarch's work in the first uh, bay, and in the second bay Julie Irving, and then in the third bay Leslie Dumbrell. The Ewing Gallery itself was an exquisite little white box of a gallery, a lovely space without natural light that enhanced and underscored the properties of the large variety of work shown there. It was always impeccably clean. There was nothing casual or amateur, nothing studentish about the gallery. Kiffy's curatorial gaze was clean and modern. She controlled the space with an eye for elegant minimalism, recognising that the white cube aesthetic framed contemporary art and gave it its edge. You can see Leslie's work at the back. Just, where are we going now? Go back again. Doink, there we go. Here's Leslie's work up close. Uh, At 32, Leslie Dumbrell was gaining a reputation for her elegant optical paintings. Kiffy and I visited Leslie, a full-time artist, working from a home studio. We all became fast friends. Uh, Julie's work doesn't come up very well in this, unfortunately, because it's white. And, and quite subtle. Um, at 20, Julie Irving was embarking on her career. <clears throat> she was a post-graduate student at the VCA. We met with her in the school's upstairs painting studio in her small area amid the crowded easels. She showed us some remarkable abstract paintings whose white surfaces were scored with delicate markings. We responded to the work's sophistication and to the diffident yet clear manner in which Julie presented herself. Julie recalls being invited to participate in the show, which made a very big difference to how I thought about myself as someone who would have an artistic practice for life. Adelaide artist Anne Newmarch was the final choice. Of the three, Newmarch was the only realist and the only one whose work was determinedly feminist, and political. A lecturer at the South Australian School of Art, Newmarch was a member of the Progressive Art Movement, a muralist and a poster maker who was active in many community-based arts projects. In the catalogue, she wrote, I am not interested in art that talks only to the visually elite. Hostile to the precious one-off, Newmarch made prints in order to produce readily available, low-priced work. Her subtly-toned silk screen, Suburban Reflections, explores media treatment of women. Bland, pretty faces culled from advertisements surround a strong, sensuous nude, while above is repeated the Vietnam War's most famous news photograph, a naked Vietnamese girl screaming in pain from napalm bombs, burned. sorry, as she runs from her bombed village. I recall feeling shocked by Newmarch's provocative imagery, bold and new. It heralded issues about style and content that would dominate the decade. This is the catalogue for A Room of One's Own, which was designed to form a box, so you could literally create a room of one's own. The title was Kiffy's Choice. It was taken, of course, from Virginia Woolf's 1929 benchmark feminist essay about women's creativity and the space, the actual physical environment, the separate, contained area of silence and contemplation that is required in order for creativity to flourish. A space that, as Woolf puts out, history has done its utmost to deny. I thought the title was corny, passe but Kiffy brooked no opposition. Perhaps the title had resonance for her because the George Payton had become Kiffy's room of her own. She had found the place where her creativity could be expressed, explored, displayed and validated. Like many women of my generation, feminism was an intense experience, a fire burning within me. So when Kiffy and I were interviewed for The Age about the exhibition, I was taken aback when Kiffy told the journalist, we're not on a mad feminist kick. Mad feminist kick. While well, the catalog's opening sentence affirmed Virginia Woolf's insistence on upholding a woman's need for physical and psychological independence. The final sentence, the works are statements by artists who happen to be women, not by women who are also artists. Contradicted it. What were Kiffy's reservations? Firstly, there were her professional and entrepreneurial instincts. No doubt she wanted a room of one's own, made available to a broad public. And maybe she was concerned that my radicalism might pro- prove a trifle strong for the readers of the age. Secondly, it indicates the complexity and ambivalence with which Kiffy approached feminism. The way in which she envisaged, envisaged feminism functioning within society, art, and perhaps her own life. That is, the creative space of the woman could be located and occupied, but to identify this space as feminist, to politicise it with such a word, might isolate or marginalise the very activities that space was meant to support. To coincide with the Room for One's Own, we organised a panel discussion, Women in the Arts and the Media, that was held in the public lecture theatre, then the largest venue at Melbourne University, and it was filled to overflowing. Um, okay. No, it's okay. Is that better? Okay, cool. Ooh, it's going down again. Shall I just hold it or something? I don't know. It should. Yeah. Let's see how we go. That's better. Um, and this is a photograph uh, of the public lecture theatre at Melbourne University that night in 1974. And in the foreground, you can see Kiffy in her enormous platform sandals, very of the era, uh, clapping as she is listening to the papers. Speakers included Claudia Wright. Helen Garner, Leslie Dumbrell and Jenny Watson. Um, This is a photograph again from that same evening and that's uh, me on your left and Lynn Cook. At the end of the evening, a woman stood up and asked if people were aware that 1975 was to be International Women's Year. Kiffy and I were already discussing the possibility of an historical survey show of women's art We decided the best way to secure funding and publicity was to organise it in International Women's Year. Thus, our next venture, Australian Women Artists, 100 Years, 1840 to 1940, was the daughter of a room of one's own. Though it also addressed, in a more major way, the frustrations and the lacunae that my art history courses and indeed the entire discipline presented. I was thrilled and terrified when Kiffy appointed me the exhibition's curator. It was my first job after completing my degree. We did the show on a a shoestring and remarkably fast. I started my research in January and the show opened in September. I traveled around the country scouring art museums, regional galleries, auction houses and private collections, often finding major works hidden away and rarely on view. After the exhibition opened at the George Payton, it toured to the Art Gallery of New South Wales, Newcastle Art Gallery and Art Gallery of South Australia. While I was interested in teasing out notions of feminine sensibility elements of either content or form that could identify a work as produced by a woman, my primary concern was to select notable works by artists, many of whom were unknown. Like this one in Queensland Art Gallery, which has become one of the most popular works in the collection and is always on display. Vida Monday Morning from 1912. When I came to turn the catalogue of the exhibition into a book that was published in 1980, I selected this work as the cover. It's a majestic painting of a prosaic task, women completing the arduous job of the weekly wash, one scouring the clothes, the other heeming the steeping clothes with a stick into the rinse. While Lei was a noted artist in her time and from a middle-class background, she chose to represent women's domestic labour as heroic. Kiffy put no breaks on my selection process, though naturally I consulted with her and with Assistant Director Meredith Rogers and with our committee that included Grazi Gunn and Daniel Thomas. Perhaps the most heartening response I received was from women artists who told me, "'Now I see, I have a history.' The reviews were excellent, though it earned two negative reviews. Those were written by two of my female teachers in the finance department. My research indicated that Australia had a stronger and more defined women's art history than many other countries. There had been two waves of groundbreaking practice. The first was in the late 19th and early 20th century, the era around federation, with the women members of the Heidelberg School who included Jane Sutherland. This is her work, Field Naturalists, from around 1896, which is in the NGV, as well as May Vale and Clara Southern. It was a time when Australia led the world in many areas of reform. Women had the vote here long before the English suffragettes and without their bitterly protracted battle. This Australian state were the first to extend property rights to women, to limit working hours, to grant old age pensions, maternity allowance, and support for widows and deserted wives. The second wave followed the First World War and included the modernists. Grace Cosington Smith, Interior with Wardrobe Mirror, and Margaret Preston's marvellous self-portrait from 1930. As Bernard Smith noted in Australian Painting, first published in 1962, In the period between the wars, the introduction of post-impressionism owed much to women. Indeed, the contribution of women appears to have been greater than that of men, an individual achievement in every way comparable. Thus, a progressive era assisted the prominence of women artists. But the conservative period after World War II was less kind. Women who'd been drawn into the workforce due to the war were expected to give up their jobs and go home. Joy Hester emerged as the lone member of the Heidi Circle, while Melbourne artist Lena Bryans had her circle, including Ian Fairweather and Danila Vasiliev. It was why I decided to end the exhibition in 1940 because until the late 60s and early 70s, women's art did not flourish in a broader way. The research shifted my own practice. I'd been a formalist critic. Art and culture, Clement Greenberg's collection of essays was my Bible. But now it seemed limited as issues about gender, identity, art world and sexual politics, as well as chronic historic denial, challenged my attitude. Greenberg's notion of quality in a work of art, which was framed by a kind of historical consensus about who belonged in the pantheon and who didn't, was exposed as a bigoted, sexist enterprise that mostly served white men. At that point, i had published essays on John Firth Smith, Clive Murray-White and Alan Leach-Jones. But I decided to forego writing or curating male artists and for the next few years to concentrate on women. The men weren't happy. I might add the fact that George Payton did not have at that time a reputation for staging major exhibitions, let alone major historical exhibitions. And it meant some in the art world were dubious that we could successfully commit this project and those people were obstructive. But that was outweighed by more progressive and generous souls who gave us unqualified support. One of those was Gordon Thompson, then director of the National Gallery Victoria. Gordon wanted the exhibition for the NGV, a prospect which delighted me, but one on which Kiffy poured cold water because the George Payton was her gallery. She had done the groundwork and nobody was going to receive credit other than her team. Fair enough. In 1975, another significant shift took place. wonderful photograph by the feminist photographer Sue Ford um, of Lucy Lippard giving a talk in the George Payton Gallery. We're all sitting on the floor as we used to do in those days. So you've got Lucy on your left and then uh, the sculptor, Nolene Lucas, and behind her the painter Irene Barbaros and some other women. The catalyst for the formation of the women's art movement in Melbourne was the visit of New York critic Lucy Lippard. Lippard, who'd made her name writing about pop art and minimalism, had committed herself to the cause of women's art. As part of her Melbourne visit, she was scheduled to give a talk at the George Payton. The George Payton was becoming the Melbourne contact for all things contemporary in art, whether local, national or international. Lucy's talk was well attended. With a collective, she had started a slide register for women's in New York and showed a selection. Kiffy asked Leslie Dumbrell to escort Lucy to several artist studios, including those of Jenny Watson and Erica McGilchrist. Also to galleries, including Pinnacothica, the highly regarded center for abstract and minimalist art. When director Bruce Pollard invited Lippard to view the stockroom, She explained she was only interested in seeing women artists. Bruce took umbrage and, as Leslie recalls, Lucy gave him a serve, then walked out. The story went round the art world like wildfire. Leslie recalled, Lucy was saying, you know all these women artists, why don't you interact with them more? This is absurd. Things will only change if you stick together. After discussions discussions with Erica, Leslie decided to start a women's art network here. Kiffy and Meredith, though delighted to provide the organisational background for the venture, told Leslie the initiative must come from the artists themselves. The first meeting of the Women's Art Register in 1975 was a revelation. Elizabeth Gower recalled it was empowering to see a whole room full of women artists, older women like Dawn Syme, Ailsa O'Connor and Isabel Davies, women you were curious about as well as younger women. The meeting was contextualised by the Australian Women Artists Exhibition, Hanging on the Wall. Lucy's talk and the foundation of the women's art movement were enactments of feminist led strategy occupying the gallery space. The slide register acted as a focus for women artists. Not only did it spawn meetings, groups, projects, and lectures, it marked the emergence of women's art in Melbourne as a significant force. This is Robert Rooney's photograph of Kiffy at her desk in the George Payton uh, around 1978. Kiffy chose not to be in a separate office excluded from the gallery space, which meant she and Meredith were there to welcome, talk and generally interact with gallery visitors. This openness was emblematic of Kiffy's personal and professional style. It also concurred with the mood of the times, non-hierarchical, egalitarian. To walk into a gallery in 1978 and and to see two women curators running the show was pretty impressive. Kiffy's enterprise in the adventurous decade of the 70s can be viewed as a template for the life of a woman, ardent, intelligent, ambitious, idealistic, who sought to courageously explore and critically assess feminism's charter. Kiffy founded a space in which female and male artists, writers and curators could function equally, be nurtured, quickened and encouraged. It was an era when, briefly, History was on the side of women artists. Their work was seen, their voices heard. The pent-up rage of centuries of repression and denial flooded out, galvanising society globally. Kiffy was not interested in exclusivity of any kind. When men were banned from attending women's art movement meetings, Kiffy had a long face when she had to ask fine arts student Gerard Vaughan to leave. Gerard, who is, of course, now the director of the National Gallery of Australia. Gerard remembers it very well. (laughs) Getting kicked out of the Ewing by Kiffy. Kiffy initiated dialogues, whose manifestation was the curatorial program of the George Payton. She transformed a student gallery in a rather obscure corner of Melbourne University into a national and international venue for contemporary art. Kiffy and I saw the value of placing women's art history next to recent women's art, thus creating a dialogue between past and present, and politicising both recent and historical art. While Kiffy continued to uphold the highest standards of curatorial excellence, it didn't stop her from revealing the deep emotions that art aroused in her, unfettered by theory, which was not her strong point or desired position. It meant that George Payton became a collective space of feminine energy, enterprise, idealism, inquiry, engagement and dissemination.
0: Thank you. Uh, Thanks, Janine and everyone um, at ACCA for hosting us. It's so astonishing thinking about the amount of work that you did in a year to get... um, Australian Women Artists, the exhibition, off the ground. And also, I always find it astonishing to think that you were able to acquire all those works, I mean, have them loaned and displayed in the George Yes, of course, this
2: was before the bureaucracy set in, before the loan
0: agreement forms, which have to be
2: signed 12 months ahead of time. You know, you just go into a gallery and say, I want that one. I go, oh, OK, sure, yeah, yeah, we'll send you that one. It's just like that. But also the
0: catalogue you produced is such Mm -hmm. an incredibly rich and detailed. It's just phenomenal that you produced it in a year, so it was so interesting to hear about just the fast turnaround because, as you say, these timelines... um, are very different now for contemporary curatorial practice. But um, I suppose the first thing I wanted to talk to you about was uh, something that I found very striking in your presentation. And it's, oh no, can we go back to that slide? regarding Kiffy, because obviously you were invited to talk about two exhibitions that, you know, as Max put it, you were the protagonist of, in a way, a curatorial curatorial protagonist, and yet I feel like the um, lecture you gave us really pivoted around Kiffy as an individual, and she's almost like the interlocutor that helps you produce, you know, the context and whatever. and obviously, you and I a few years ago co-edited a, a whole book on Kiffy and her significance, so you've invested a lot of time in establishing Kiffy as a figure to be remembered and to be historicised. Yet, as you said, her, um, Kiffy's relationship with capital F feminism is a slightly ambivalent. So I was thinking your, your efforts to historicise Kiffy, a feminist, mm. your um, co-curating... Um, the original show, *A Room of One's Own*, is feminist, even though two of the artists in the exhibition were, as you said, not um, out, you know—didn't make explicitly feminist work. Um, so I guess what I'm getting at here is like, can we pinpoint the feminist gesture here? In—in um, in, you know, writing, I guess, a, bi- a biography for Kiffy, and um, yeah, if that makes sense.
2: yeah, it does make perfect sense. And, um, look, I think, yeah, Kiffy's definitely my project. I mean, I have learnt uh, over time, from having organised Australian Women Artists, how long it actually takes for, well, artists in general if they've been ignored, but women artists in particular, to gain, you know, the kind of attention that they need to gain. And, you know, I found this with Joy Hester. I mean, it took me actually decades from, you know, kind of starting at ground zero of confronting an oeuvre that had never been catalogued or never put in a chronological context, uh, which was happening in the late 1970s, to where she was, you know, is now regarded as one of the most significant women artists in Australian art. And look, these things just don't happen. No, they really don't. Uh, They don't happen by chance. It's not about just being a bit lucky, though artists can be a bit lucky. But uh, over the years, I really felt that I had to drive that really hard. And after doing my MA on her, writing a book on her, curating a retrospective at the National Gallery of Victoria, when I came to work on the letters between her and Sunday Reed, my publisher said to me, well, you're going to have to write this really long introduction. And I'm like, but I wrote a biography. And they're like, everyone's forgotten it. And I'm like, really? And they were right. They had, you know. So I had to kind of reposition her once again um, about 15 years later. And the... Those letters between her and Sunday were very important because they're very human. They were personal. They were domestic, and her work can be very challenging and very provocative. It kind of gave people a pathway to walk through, and I became very aware of that—that that you need these kind of pathways—and and I went on the same trajectory with Sunday Reed. You know, um, that she was seen as kind of the wicked witch of the West, as far as I could work out. And why was that? You know, then when I did all the research on it, there's absolutely no reason for it. So it was the same sort of thing. I mean, I just sort of drove Sunday down everybody's throat until they swallowed and they finally did. So I'm doing the same thing with Kiffy and it's, it's quite... It, it's very conscious on my part that I want her to be really... And it's very hard, you know, with curators because an artist has an oeuvre, you know, Sunday, Sunday had Heidi. You know, what has Kiffy got? So you have to kind of find out the, the sort of... the kind of pathway for that particular woman and how to position her in cultural history in a way that lasts, you know?
0: Thank you, it's a really nice response. Um, The second thing I found really striking uh, in the lecture was you mentioned the two negative reviews of Australian women artists came from women, um, and not just any women, but two senior women in your own academic department at Melbourne University, so Anne Galbally and um, Margot Leithlyn. I suppose what I'm wondering, from your perspective, is whether uh, their criticisms were coming from a feminist perspective, say by, you know, one that by the 1975, from your perspective, was now outmoded and needed updating, or did you, do you perceive um, their criticisms of the show to have been expressive of an intergenerational feminist frustration, or were they just uh, off the mark? And if you can, did you can you remember what they wrote, or do you want me to remind you? Or?
2: I can, vaguely,
0: yeah, yes.
2: Um, look, it was all about power. That's what it was about. It was just hugely about power, and these two women had, you know, gained certain. D- for positions in the finance department and were being highly regarded and were doing their research. And then along came this younger generation, maybe exemplified at that particular point by me, that was who was really upsetting the apple cart. And instead of saying, oh, yeah, art history is just so amazing and we just worship Picasso and whoever else we're taught to worship, um, and instead said, hey, look, it's all wrong. You know, the whole thing's wrong. We've got to rewrite history. We've got to find the women artists. We've got to put them out there. And I think they were incredibly threatened by that, and rightly so. And so they should have been threatened by it, because we were coming after them, and we were coming after art history. You know, we weren't going to let it be the nice, safe zone that it had been. We were going to say things like, women have been, you know... um, misrepresented and undermined and excluded, and a whole lot of art history is about sex. Sex, sex, sex. (laughs) (laughs) And they didn't like that either, you know. Um, It was about sexual politics. It was about sex. And so, yeah, I think it was kind of... They were, like, holding up, you know, a hand against the tidal wave that was coming, and they probably knew
0: it was coming, and it did come. Yeah. Galbally, in particular, took... um offence to the separatist methodology, I suppose, of having women only? Because she would take the sort of Eva Hess stance, well, excellence has no gender. Maybe perhaps she perceived herself to have, you know, arrived in her position of her own merit which, and, and not wanting to acknowledge any of the other structural... Um, well, I think that was
2: pure sophistry on her part. I mean, she didn't really know very much about contemporary art anyway. Her area was the Heidelberg School. And, and I think she found, just found it, um, you know, we were supposed to just shut up, you know, as undergraduate students and behave ourselves and be nice girls, you know, and not be... And there were a lot of nice girls in the art department, the fine arts department, you know, very behaved young women. And so when this new group arose that included, you know, Kiffy as well, and we had a gallery as our kind of forum for some of the things that we wanted to um, explore, I think it was just very threatening and, you know... It's just a hegemony that wants to shut down the dissident voices. But they're on the wrong side of history, so, you know. Um,
0: I really liked your description of... Uh, the first meeting of the Women's Art Register uh, taking place in the George Payton Gallery with the backdrop of the um, 100 Years of women Australian Women Artists exhibition. Um, sort of thinking of the exhibition, or as you've sort of been describing, the um, gallery that Kiffy cultivated as a site of sociality, of politics, of organising. And it um, caused me immediately to think of... Emily Floyd and Mary Featherstone's work that they created for Unfinished Business here a few years ago, and which was just beautifully installed in the centre of an exhibition, so that whenever, wherever you were sitting in that circle for an event, um, you'd be looking at artwork by various feminist artists on the walls. Um, so this is to say, you know, we've just talked a bit about the um, intergenerational um, relationship with women before you, and now I want to kind of think about. Um, successive generations of feminists and maybe we can use Unfinished Business as a bit of a pivot point for that because you reviewed the exhibition for Art Monthly Australia and um, for it you uh, had the excellent title borrowed from one of the placards that was on display and um, I think from memory it was I can't believe I still have to fucking protest this bullshit. Is that about right? (laughs) It's about right. (laughs) So... um, (laughs) I mean, this is quite a banal but important question. Um, You know, you began your exhibition review of Unfinished Business by looking back over the past 44 years and thinking about why am I still... Why are we all still protesting the same stuff? What are the major differences uh, you've perceived or continuities, you know, either or as a starting point, between um, the feminist art agenda of the 1970s and today in Australia?
2: Well, I think what, uh, I think what uh, Unfinished Business did, which was so very important, was to provide us with this historical overview. And it was kind of quite exciting to see work from the 70s, you know, important posters, say, by Marie McMahon, you know, a whole range of work that was, you know, provocative and feminist and um, anti-racist and all, all of the things that were coming up at that point. And uh, looking back... You know, the Unfinished Business had the opportunity to sort of frame that, you know, it could frame um, the past with the present or the present with the past and and create this sort of um, dialogue, well, maybe not even a dialogue, maybe it was more like a monologue, a feminist monologue, kind of running from the 1970s on. And I, I think it was like refreshing um, to see all of that, like literally refreshing and awakening and engaging. To see a lot of younger women artists again taking heart from that, and saying as they did when they saw the Australian Women Artists exhibition, "Ah, oh, I've got this history, you know." And we have to keep reminding ourselves, you know, because we keep we seem to keep forgetting um, that history. We, you know, we forget a lot of things. I mean, memories are a, you know, kind of problematic issue in, in history anyway, all the time. Um, but it seems like a good moment, and also within the context of the Hashtag Me Too movement, which again gives us that awakening sense of, you know, thinking, yeah, things are OK. Oh, my God, no, they're not. They're absolutely terrible. Um, which is what hashtag Me Too delivered to us. You know, it's actually been around for years, but it's only in the last 12 to 18 months that it's really taken on the global significance that it has now. And I'm sure that's been very empowering and kind of awakening, you know, um, for a lot of women and and women in the sort of cultural sector. Like, don't just think it's all okay and it's going well. You really have to keep interrogating your own position and seeing what the power structures are. Like... Who's up there? You know, who's ahead of you? Who's on top of you? What's going on? You know, it, it just needs to be unpicked constantly.
0: Did you say that you felt like it was a, a monologue?
2: Yeah, like... I think it provided a monologue That's from, from the seventies. Yeah, oh,
0: from the seventies. Yeah, yeah, because I suppose 70s. I felt like the exhibition had such complex um, vectors coursing across yes. it that often produce. You know, conflict in a way, and I found that kind of an interesting thing to try and deal with because mm. I suppose in the 1970s, or at least when we historicised the 70s from the present moment, pe- people of my generation, I think, oh, it's was all about solidarity and coalition building and mm. collectivity, whereas um, one of the key themes that I sort of felt like um, came out of the exhibition in a way was conflict and how are different positions mm, butt really up against point. each other. Yeah, and I, I d- guess I'm,
2: I'm just, guess I'm kind of gone into a sort of rosy coloured view of the whole thing. Perhaps I've just got my rose-coloured no, glasses on. No, rightly off. so. I just think <laughs> it's
0: sort of... Um, I suppose as uh, the feminist project uh, today becomes increasingly co- concerned with intersectionality and anti-racism yes. and anti-capitalism and whatever, it's inevitable that this kind of internal conflict was going to come up and become a characteristic of feminism's plural, I guess, which is... But there was plenty of that back in the 1970s as well. I mean, there was no
2: concerted agreement. And I think that's why Kiffy's position is kind of emblematic in that she had this kind of um, engagement with feminism, but then a kind of a concern, a kind of reserve about uh, making an overstatement and, you know, kind of boxing yourself into something. So, yeah, there was a lot of sort of... Um, kind of push-pull energy back then as well and, you know, between the various feminist groups and, you know, for example, like lesbian separatists at that time said... ..would say, you know, well, feminism's the practice and lesbianism... So, is the theory and, you know, lesbianism is the practice. So, if you really want to call yourself a feminist, then you have to be a lesbian. So, there were, you know, there were those kind of... Um, ..irritations, which are good, you know. they they
0: are dynamic. Um, we, it would be nice to open to the floor in just a moment, but before we do that, there's um, one more question, slightly perhaps a slightly weirder one for you, um, but in over the last 10 years, Janine, your um, research practice and your curatorial work has taken on quite a specific bent. You've been focusing a lot on animals, plants, trees, um, non-human sentience, and um, and how to work with these um, more matters, art historically, curatorially. I'm wondering if um, this approach is perhaps also comes from your feminist um, training and background. I'm sort of thinking of eco-feminists and people mm-hmm. like Donna Haraway, who are now sort of making the argument that as feminists, we need to extend our solidarity beyond other women or I mean, identifying people and towards plants, land, mm. animals. Mm.
2: Um, yeah, that's a good point, and I'd say
0: that yes,
2: there is a feminist element to that, and you know the feminist element is um, being non-hierarchical. You know, it's it's a profound, it's it's kind of trying to shift, you know, the power at its roots. Um, and I've always found that hierarchical view of art and anything to be absolutely inimical to me. And so the idea, you know, that animals are less than us or they feel less or they understand less or they can do less is quite um, kind of almost insulting. And it, it sort of deconstructs the idea of what it means to be human, like what does it mean to be human? So, and, and also, you know, Sunday Reid played quite a big part in that because she kind of, doing research on her, because she was so enmeshed with the natural world with, gardens, with, you know, creating gardens and, and kind of domestic spaces that were sort of feminist interior spaces. And she taught me a lot about that. She sort of probably taught me to listen to birds, you know. Um, so I think one thing has grown from the other, but certainly the main emphasis would be the kind of um, de-hierarchicalisation of us as, you know, superior kind of Homo sapiens who are actually <laughs> destroying the planet with our <laughs> superiority, you know. Yeah. Okay,
0: thank you. Thank you. Um, Should we ask questions from the audience? Would you like to tell us a tiny bit more about your how you're approaching the current book on trees from this feminist standpoint, if it's possible? Um, too early to say? A
2: bit too early. Yeah, it's a bit too early. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. probably, yeah. But are there other things
0: that I spoke of
2: tonight that you would like me to enlarge upon or... Um, flesh out a little bit further or you know you might have curiosity about some things.
3: Um, thank you. Uh, since the centrepiece in a way you said is Kiffy and I've read your guys's wonderful book on Kiffy and for me that was a really interesting entrance point back into a world that I'm not in very often but I'm deeply passionate about but from the point of view of a mother who sort of struggles to be into Worlds, and that was very Mm. sort of explicit in her experience. And I wonder how now as we kind of live in this more turbocharged world of um, interconnected identity performance, functionality, you know, like our careers, our need for, attempt to, like that feminist adage about having it all, whether you're a woman or a man Mm. and what that entails. What do you think Kiffy would have made of that? I mean, I make of her, mm-hmm. looking back, mm-hmm. somebody who, it's like I can crawl inside her story and see these parts, and I don't know if I'm just projecting that, but, you know, it's a sensational triumph, but then also to be overwhelmed by how hard the task is, you know, to be present, to do these great things, and then also to have this interior world with your small people who depend on you. So. I don't know if that's something that it's
2: like... Yeah, that's something that's very real for women and very real for Kiffy, because, yeah, she had two (coughs) young children and she was running this, you know, increasingly complicated, dynamic, highly regarded space. And I remember um, she felt towards the end of her life that she felt kind of embittered about feminism. I remember her saying to me, well, you know... It hasn't lived up to its promises and, you know, what, we made all these promises. And I said, but actually we weren't made any promises, you know. We really had taken it on and it was disruptive and, and frightening and it, it, it kind of wrecked people's lives and it wrecked hers too, you know. And unfortunately she didn't have the time to get past that and rehabilitate herself and find, find another path. Um... So, I think she found it quite excruciatingly difficult to... ..just as women do today. Um, But but then, kind of, in a way, you were just supposed to do everything and not talk about it, you know? And also, most of the people who were around her, like me, were a whole generation younger. And, you know, we were living in student houses and having traumatic love affairs and blah, blah, blah. And she was a married woman with two children, you know? It was her life was very different to ours. And it was a life that she loved and longed for, but I think finally, particularly at the end of that decade, and I think a lot of us at the end of the seventies were just totally exhausted from the amount that we'd done, and we we're suddenly kind of looking around, going, "God, you know what's next?" and you know, "Can we just relax now and stop?" So it was a it was a curious sort of hiatus,
0: and uh, yeah. Sorry, Helen. We're just going to say that you also noted that at the turn of that decade in the entry into the 1980s and the rise of postmodern theory, yeah. it just obliterated the yeah. sort of um, desirability to identify as a feminist in the sort of art scene here.
2: Well, I think theory became a, a, la- a much larger issue and Kiffy wasn't interested in theory and a lot of feminists weren't. Um, and so while some of us were sort of, you know, reading Deleuze and Guattari and, you know, Dekida and Julie Christova, um, a lot of other feminists were going, mm, I don't want to do that. And then you had a really kind of incredibly important cultural figure like Paul Taylor, who started Art and Text. And um, he was very welcoming of women into the, the circle that... It was around art and text, but very dismissive of feminism. Femin- feminism became a dirty word overnight around 1980. It was just, you know, oh, that just meant you were boring and tedious and you were political and you were, you know. So you just had to kind of shut up. It was really interesting. Everyone just shut up. All these feminists sort of shut up. And the ground was taken, you know, by... A whole new um, arena. And you had exhibitions like, you know, Zeitgeist, which opened uh, first in Berlin and then went to London's Royal Academy. There was one woman in that exhibition, Susan Rothenberg, and the rest of them were the trans Guardia, you know, Anselm Kiefer, you know, this huge array of men. It was just like the door, which seemed to have been open, just went, bang, you know, overnight. And so women had to regroup. And it took a long time, it really did take an awfully long time for feminism to become something that was... You know, younger women just didn't want to have anything to do... Don't call me a feminist, I'm not a feminist. Um, It just became a dirty word. Now it's okay again. Yeah.
3: Linda, did you have a question? Sorry. I'm not familiar with the second exhibition and I was just wondering if you could... You spoke about going to borrow work from all over the place. If you could talk a little bit about the scope of the exhibition?
2: Oh, yeah, sure. Yes, yeah, so we decided to um, start in 1840, to take it up to 1940. So we were looking... I was looking at artists uh, who were, you know, pretty much unknown, often botanical artists, like Ellis Rowan, who were active at that time. And then, of course, there was the marvellous discovery of the women artists of the Heidelberg School, about whom we knew virtually nothing and suddenly there was a whole group of them, you know, who had gone through the Gallery School with Tom Roberts and Arthur Street and and all of those people. You know, they shared studios, Grosvenor Chambers in Collins Street. Um, Clara Sutherland was there, Jane Sutherland was there, Tom Roberts was there, they were all there. Um, So that was extremely exciting to see this really uh, beautiful, strong work created by women artists in the late 19th century and then to have this powerful change around federation and, you know, with Australia leading the way globally in social reforms. And then there was the next uh, major movement, which was the era between the wars. And so there was this another extraordinary group of artists, you know, Grace and smith Grace Crowley, Margaret Preston, Thea Proctor. You know, there were a lot of them. And Bernard Smith had already acknowledged that in Australian painting. So it was... uh, We've got a fantastic history of women artists in this country. You know, it's really... It's terrific, you know. It's visible and it's available and it's there. So that's what I discovered as I began to do the research and why I ended it in 1940 was because, you know, this hiatus took place and didn't really revive until a bit later. But, yeah, and, you know, most of the time I found people very excited and interested, though some people would say to me, a whole exhibition about women artists, like, who's going to be in it? I mean, there's, okay, there's Margaret Preston, and there's um, Grace Cosington Smith, Uh, who else is there? So, uh, it was really great to have people walk in and go, wow, look at all of this work, you know, by women who were the successful ones. I mean, I was going mainly to state uh, art museums. They were in the art museums. They'd be bought by the art museums. You know, they weren't the losers. They had been, at a certain point, the winners. Um, But, uh, you know, (laughs) I remember at the National Gallery of Victoria talking to one rather grumpy curator and uh, going to look at Jane Sutherland's work in the stacks, because most of the works I was looking at, they're always in the stacks. They're never on view. And there's this marvellous, delicate painting by Jane Sutherland called The Mushroom Gatherers. And it was literally hanging out of its frame, you know. And I said, oh, could this work be restored? You know, because I'd really love to put it in the exhibition. And he said, well, it has to, well, it's going to have to be restored. If it's going to be restored, that'll take a year, so you can't have it for the exhibition. So it was kind of like a you know, I couldn't exhibit it as it was, but then I couldn't exhibit it because then, you know. So there are a lot of those kind of strange moments um, with curators who were, some of whom, some of whom were, um, yeah, not happy about it at
0: all. Um, yeah, I'm um, going back to the word feminism. Uh, I'm very concerned about the objectivation, uh ah, sorry, of the word feminism by some marketing and some brand nowadays and how, um, yeah, how it's out there, but like lost. Yeah, and I was wondering what you think about that, like um, have these t-shirts, all this brand taking, yeah, all the merch around that. Like, yeah, yeah, like what do you, you know, like do you feel like nowadays um, feminism, like, shifts or getting power, like, what do you feel? Well, look,
2: you know, under capitalism, everything turns into a commodity, and so has feminism. Um, and look, if you go to see an exhibition of Renoir retrospective or something and there's masses of merch and, you know, mugs and cups and tea yeah. towels and, you know, all of that, um, then I want the same for women. Yeah, I want, I want women to have all the merch as well. I want them to have that kind of attention and to be selling in that way. Because as much as one can feel, you know, have reservations about it, of course we have reservations about it. But on the other hand, I think the important thing to learn that I've always felt is that, you know, I'm, I've never been interested in preaching to the converted. The converted are fine. They look after themselves, you know? But for a wider audience um, and people who are often hungry to know these things but they can't find a pathway into it, I mean, it might sound a bit banal to say, well, maybe they will if they buy a tea towel. Well, maybe they will if they buy a tea towel. You know, maybe that will give them the opportunity to look at something in their kitchen that they actually really love. So I think you have to sort of um, just be pragmatic about it, you know?
0: Hi. Hi. Um, I was wondering if you were aware of um, the response of women artists in Australia to shows like The Field and just before this, The Field and two decades of American painting. And was there unhappiness amongst women artists at the number of women artists in The Field, for example? Oh, absolutely. I mean,
2: for example, Leslie Dumbrell should certainly have been in that exhibition. And she knew um, John Stringer, who who, uh, curated it, and why she wasn't included, who who knows, who can tell? And I think it's great doing the field, you know, rebooting the field exhibition, because we have the opportunity to look back at how brilliant that exhibition was, how brilliantly it came up. I thought it looked stunning. Uh, And then to also recognise the lacunae of where are the women artists and, you know, that... And that was attended to, I think, by the, the curator who was working on that. So that, that was paid attention to. It was a little bit before my time, you know, 1968. I didn't see the field. I was schoolgirl. I was 16, so I didn't know about it. Um, but it was certainly, as I was growing up, an incredibly important benchmark Um, in Australian art meeting the international art. And I think looking at the field, because it was criticised, oh, it's just like a page out of Art International. They've just been looking at what everyone's doing in New York. Well, they weren't. Um, I think the paintings were very authentic, uh, of, of their own experience and their own aesthetic, and beautifully produced. So I think that gave us the opportunity to be very proud of that exhibition and how important it was. But, yeah, I mean, yes, the big big blooper was the fact there were so few women in the
1: show. I wonder how you feel about Alex Miller's book, Autumn Lang. Do you feel that that's... um Yeah, I know, Alex,
2: he's a friend of mine. Yeah. And uh, apparently he was shit scared when he was writing the book of what I was going to think of it. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I ended up reviewing it for the monthly and, uh, yeah, I was kind to it, you know. I mean, really, I think that Sunday Read, why do you need to fictionalise that story? I mean, in in itself... Fantastic The truth of it is the most extraordinary, you know, Mm -hmm. like if I was still writing fiction, if you wrote that as a novel, you'd say, come on. That couldn't possibly have happened, but it did, you know, it did, so I think finally it's the, um, it's the, the truth of the matter, the non-fiction historical research that will probably stand up, but look, it's an, his, that's his interpretation of Sunday Reed, and it tests the fact that she's become a very important cultural figure. Just got one more, and then we might wrap up. Oh, hi, Peter.
1: Um, I'm interested in, in uh, talking a little bit about Ki- Kiffy. And it seems to me that um, that so much of Kiffy's work and so much of Kiffy's activity remains in- invisible. Um, and as you said, going into the George Payton Gallery, experiencing, talking, go- gossiping um, with Kiffy and Meredith was an important activity. But it's also the fact of the prompting and things that are on the edge of curatorial activity, um, and the, the uh, attempt to get things going was such an important activity, but it's invisible almost. Um, what's your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I think if he had sort of Herculean energy, and uh, re- when I was doing research for the, the book that Helen and I did, Um, about the George Payton, you know, I went through all the archives at uh, University of Melbourne and she was was a micromanager before the term was invented. I mean, she was writing to people, she was following up with people, she was taking things forward to people all the time. And I think she enjoyed, because, you know, like the kind of hard theory art history side of things that maybe somebody like me or you know people from that era Anne Stephen or we were interested in wasn't her forte, and so the, um, that communicating and of course feminism gave us that license very much in the '70s you know you weren't expected to be sort of quoting dates and, and titles and etc of works of art it was it was about certain kinds of responses. And she was open enough to engender that and then create that space where these kind of discourses, as you say, talk and gossip, these kinds of discourses could take place and where women artists who worked with Kiffy would often say to me they felt so welcome, they felt they were given some confidence. Kiffy herself seemed like the most confident person in the world, but she was not. She was actually quite a private person. Um, But nonetheless... uh, Her energy just transformed uh, that space and and it transformed the 1970s. It turned the 1970s into something that, as far as feminism goes, is really quite an extraordinary chapter.
0: But um, the historicisation of Kiffy from the present moment is quite interesting when you think about it in relation to the emerging disciplines of curatorial studies and exhibition histories, which are sort of different from art history. but still perhaps wedded to some of the models like the monograph. For instance, Oqui and Wazor died recently and we're about to see a slew of monographic analyses of his contribution as a curator, which will inevitably pivot around his authorial genius and the way he stamped. But Kiffy, on the other hand, as you sort of said, her contribution is more edgeless and she didn't have, like, um, down-your-throat curatorial visions, but she created a, a space that was... Perhaps more subtle and atmospheric, and perhaps more feminist and non individualistic. And so it's kind of. Yeah, the, the
2: no, I agree with what you're saying. Yeah. I think that's what she did do. And, um, you know, the exhibitions all had a really small turnaround time. I mean, she was. Every show only lasted two weeks apart. Australian men artists had that on for longer. But if you just like two weeks, then, you know, on to the next show, Mickey Allen's show, or, you know, whoever it might be. Um, a group show, or or Dom DeClario, or Peter Cripps, or, you know, whoever it might be. Um, It was really a very energetic, um, badly funded, you know, time. Uh, And everybody just accepted that lack of money. Um, And there weren't that many places to go to ask for money anyway. Mm.
0: Well, um, thank you, Janine, for such a beautiful lecture. Thank you for the questions. Thank Thank you. Thank
3: you, this evening. We have one more lecture in the series for this year and then we'll be on
0: to next year. So that's on Monday the 4th of November with Anne Marsh, uh, post-object art um, in Australia and New Zealand. So I hope you'll join us then too. Thank you.